If you look over many decades, macroeconomic trends worldwide have generally been positive. But even before the pandemic, our levels of unhappiness are also rising. In this episode, the ways leaders can begin to address unhappiness within their organizations. This is Coaching for Leaders, Episode 601. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. It's not news to anyone that there has been a trend to see a lot of unhappiness in the world in recent years. It's a trend that we certainly saw happen with the pandemic, but it's actually been going on long before that. Today, a bit of perspective from one of the leading voices in how we can really work to lead effectively on unhappiness and what we can do better as leaders. I'm so glad to welcome John Clifton to the show. John is the CEO of Gallup. His mission is to help 7 billion citizens be heard on their most pressing work and life issues through the Gallup World Poll, a 100-year initiative spanning over 150 countries. He is a non-resident senior fellow at Baylor University's Institute for Studies of Religion and serves on the boards of directors for Gallup and Young Professionals in Foreign Policy. John has been interviewed on the BBC News, Axios, C-SPAN's Washington Journal, and Al Jazeera, and has testified in front of the U.S. Congress on the state of American small business and entrepreneurship. He is a frequent contributor on Gallup.com and has written for The Hill, the Diplomatic Courier, and the Global Action Report. He is the author of Blind Spot: The Global Rise of Unhappiness and How Leaders Missed It. John, what a pleasure to have you on the show. Dave, thank you for having me. The a book is fascinating. I always love reading anything from Gallup because there's such a heart for people, but also at the same time, the data to support so many of the trends and the things that we're seeing in the world. And I was particularly interested in the GDP numbers that you cite over the years and indexes like the United Nations Human Development Index. And when you look at those numbers, those traditional measures over the last 20 to 30 years, they look really good overall. The trend line is in the direction that we'd want those trends to be. And yet, and I'm quoting you, according to Gallup, people feel more anger, sadness, pain, worry, and stress than ever before. There's a huge disconnect there, isn't there? There is. And the idea about GDP, unemployment, these kind of macro traditional economic indicators, those indicators, there's nothing wrong with them. In fact, of course, GDP per capita, it's a great metric to understand the health of the economy, but it's not a great metric to understand how people's lives are going. And the single best way to understand how people's lives are going is to just simply ask them. And that's exactly what we did and what we have been doing for the past 15 years. We go out into over 140 countries. In 40 countries, we call people. In 100 countries, we do face-to-face interviewing. They are truly nationally representative surveys. So we have to go out into the furthest parts of every country. And we ask people to tell us about how much stress do you have? How much anger do you have? How much sadness? And what's so interesting is that all of this misery has been rising in kind of a perfect linear fashion for the past decade, and it has us very concerned. The, there's transcripts in the book of some of the interviews, especially in some of the more rural places in the world. And reading through a few of them, it's just it's heartbreaking 
to think about the context of unhappiness that there is in so many places. And one of the distinctions that you draw from the data is the distinction between what's objective and what's subjective. Tell me about that distinction. Well, when you're thinking about objective indicators, you're thinking about things like a person's income, a person's weight, for example, whether or not somebody owns a car, whether or not they own a house. Those things are not really a matter of opinion. But the subjective indicators of well-being are how people feel. This is how people rate how their life is going on a scale of zero to 10. This is whether or not people experience a lot of joy in their life or a lot of sadness. And so that's kind of just an overview of the indicators that we're capturing. And the reason is because even though there are these incredible objective indicators that we can use in order to understand someone's life, it doesn't always fully explain how they feel. And that's what we're trying to complement with these indicators globally. Yeah, and it's so easy to miss the full story if you don't look at both, right? And it's interesting that in the subjective areas, how people are feeling, their emotional well-being, the, you look at two, that through two different lenses. There's how someone sees their life and then how someone lives their life. And I, I found that distinction really curious on those two. And I'm wondering if you could share with us, what is, what's the reason for looking at those lenses and how does that play out as far as what shows up in the data? So the definition of well-being is how someone sees their life and how someone lives their life. And they are two distinct concepts. The first one in terms of how someone sees them life is more of a remembering mind. And in psychology, this is just kind of how do you view all of your life historically and collectively, and how would you rate it? And the way that we capture that is to ask people, rate your life on a scale of zero to 10. 10 is the best life imaginable, and zero is the worst life imaginable. Where do you stand today? And the rankings from that are now very famous because the United Nations and SDSN, a group by John Halliwell and Jeff Sachs, call it the World Happiness Report. And that's why Denmark, Sweden, and Finland are often at the top, and countries like Haiti, the Palestinian territories, or Afghanistan are always at the bottom. It's because on average, Danes rate their lives the highest and people in Afghanistan rate their lives the lowest. On the other side, though, it's how people live life. So how much stress do you have in your life? How much anger? How much joy do you experience? Now, unfortunately, we don't have the ability to follow people around and have them do spit tests to see their cortisol levels. That would probably be the most optimal way of doing it. So the way that we have to do it now is to simply ask people about how much stress they're experiencing. And there have been studies that show that people actually do know how much stress they have. They know how much anger they have in their lives. And they're also very open about sharing it with a total stranger, a Gallup interviewer. And so when you look at kind of all of those indicators, the one that we see that's increasing the most is negative emotions. And that's where we have seen across the five, anger, stress, sadness, pain, and worry, we've seen a 10-point increase on the average of all five of those indicators globally. It's a huge movement. Do we know what's causing the change in that indicator? There are three things. The first one is global hunger. Global hunger, for four decades, the world was winning the war against hunger. And in 2014, that trend went the wrong direction. Gallup works with the Food and Agriculture Organization, a UN agency in Rome. And 20% of people in 2014 were either moderately or severely food insecure. That number is now over 30% today. Wow. And that trend is not a direct result of like the war in Ukraine, inflation or COVID. It was increasing steadily before that. So 
you know, for a lot of people, they know that the war in Ukraine is exacerbating global hunger, but it did not cause this rise in global hunger. And that's a massive distinction. The second thing is global loneliness. We find that 300 million people globally don't have anyone in their life that they talk to, no friends. And we find that over 20% of people don't have a single friend or family member that they could rely on in, t- in times of need. And loneliness, it's no longer an exaggeration to say that loneliness is killing people. Why? Because there was an academic at BYU. She did a meta-analysis that looked at loneliness globally. And what she found is that for people who experience total loneliness, it increases their chances of death by 50%. They don't have an outlet to talk to people about their problems. They don't have someone to help them in times of need, or they don't have somebody looking out for them. So this loneliness epidemic is, is very serious. And while we don't have a global pulse post the pandemic on this particular item, we do see it in isolation that it's gotten worse. And the last one is work. And when you think about a human being's life, one thing to just ask is what do they do most in life? And there's one study that says we spend 115,000 hours of life at work. That means we spend 13 straight years working So the only thing that we do more of in life is sleep. I tried to replicate the analysis looking at life expectancy, the average hours worked globally. Also, when people uh, typically retire, which is kind of the global average, and found that on the low end, it would be 83,000, which would be slightly over nine years. But the point is, we as human beings spend a lot of time working. So if you are miserable at work, it's really hard to be happy in your overall life. In fact, we find that people who are truly miserable at work, they're actively disengaged. We find that their daily misery looks more like the unemployed than it does their other non-miserable peers in the workplace. Wow. It's it's so disheartening on one level. And, and yet, it also, in a way, gives me hope of the opportunity that managers have specifically to affect in a huge way that third piece and maybe even a bit of the second the the loneliness piece as well like the the critical nature that managers and leaders play in this of work and of course Gallup has shown again and again just the power of individual managers and i want to ask you more about that but even before i get i get there you know one of the things that often comes up speaking about subjective measures is it it seems like whenever i i mean I think i'm going back to where we started with GDP numbers and big picture and kind of the the macro data like going in a good direction, but then unhappiness levels going in the other direction. It's interesting how when I often talk to leaders about motivating people and how do we retain and compete for talent, almost everyone articulates the value of good relationships and well-being in the workplace and good culture. But then when it comes to actually what are people doing, the conversation tends to come back really quickly to money and the rational measures. And one of the there's a whole chapter in the book about money. And I'm I'm quoting you asking, so does money buy happiness? Here is Gallup's best attempt at answering this question. Money does not buy happiness, but it's hard to be happy without it. Tell me what that means. Well, there was a study done using Gallup's data by Angus Deaton and Danny Kahneman, both who are now both Nobel laureates, and they looked at both of Gallup's measures, how people see their life and how they live their life. And what they found was, is that the more money you make, the higher you rate your life. And Justin Wolfers and Betsy Stevenson actually replicated this analysis globally, and they found that there is no satiation point. So the more money you make, the better you will always see your life. But the difference is, is on the other side, 
of a person's life, which is how they experience life. And so after your basic needs are met, their initial analysis said it was about $75,000 with inflation that may have very well have changed. But once your basic needs are met, money doesn't buy you more joy and it doesn't buy you less stress or anger. And so this is why money may make you see your life better, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it will make you live your life better. And this is why some of those sort of other aspects of life that I think a lot of people perceive as soft are not so soft because if you don't have any friends, it's virtually impossible to have joy in your life. And if you're lonely, you also experience a lot more negative emotions. So this is why I think one of the big emphasis on the book is the fact that life is multidimensional and life has a lot of emotional constructs that leaders need to be paying attention to because ultimately these emotional aspects of life are the things that cause us to do things like decision-making. It gets right back to that dis- the distinction of how someone sees their life versus how someone lives their life. And you can be very successful financially. And when you get that question on a scale one to 10 of how are you doing, have that rating be very high, genuinely. And yet the lived experience every day can be something that's really different, can't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you can even see this internationally, right? So if you look at the countries in the world or where the people that live in these countries is when you look at joy, when you look at laughing and smiling a lot, the people who rank the highest on positive emotions are not the traditional Nordic countries. When we talk about rate your life on a scale of zero to 10, the people who have the most fun in life are Latin Americans. Huh? And so what we've you know, discovered from this. And by the way, Latin Americans rank number one in the world for positive emotions every year for in every year that we've done this tracking. And some of that's cultural because the relationships that people throughout Latin America have with their family and friends, the mindset that when things are difficult to still figure out a way to enjoy life. There was an interview we conducted with a woman in Colombia where the dialogue Uh, couldn't stop on just those five questions about positive emotions because she couldn't stop reflecting on how much fun she has with her friends. And again, she was not necessarily wealthy. In fact, she was quite the opposite, but she still knew how, how to have fun. And I think what's so amazing about that is that whatever it is that Latin Americans have figured out, the world has a lot to learn from them because if we could replicate that globally, the world would have a lot more fun. Yeah, that's this such good news around this, and you cite so much of it in the book. And there's a couple of lenses that I'm curious about. One of them is the lens, of course, a huge constituency for any organization is their employees, perhaps the biggest. And there's a lot that we can do as individual managers to really address the uh, the emotional connection and the well-being of, of employees. When you look at the data, what is it that is helpful on being able to find that well-being with employees. When you're thinking about well-being at work, if you bring this up to executives, at least a number of them, they often think that high well-being at work is get them a volleyball court or get free food in in the cafeteria. It's not true. When you're talking about people's needs at work, their emotional needs are things like what's expected of them at work. Think about that. And it, you know, if you, if you pose that to executives, they go, well, everybody knows what they're supposed to do at work. Well, if that's true, why is it when we do our global study that more than 50% of employees everywhere say that they can't strongly agree that they know what's expected of them at work? 
Mm. But think about how maddening or frustrating that might be that you're working on a particular activity and your manager thinks that what you're doing is a waste of time. The second thing is, is again, these are just meeting basic needs of somebody's emotional needs at work, which is, do you have the materials and things you need to do your job effectively? Now, again, if you bring this up to some executives, they think that somebody's going to ask for, I don't know, something completely too expensive or something that it's not true. We worked with the manufacturing organization and many of the employees said, we don't have what we need. So, you know, what we said to them, well, what is it you need? And they go gloves that fit. Think about that. That's not yeah. a money issue. That's a listening issue. You're already spending money on their gloves, but you're buying the wrong ones, ones that don't fit. Now you have a security issue and people don't feel cared about. And I think the pinnacle of this is, do you have the opportunity to do what you do best at work? And, you know, philosophers like Aristotle to, you know, people like Peter Drucker, who spent his entire life studying management, they all agree that the key to a great life is to have success through your strengths. And managers have a massive role to help people flourish at work in terms of getting them in a role that they can do very successfully using their strengths. And that is what puts them into flow and allows them to have or, or feel more of a purpose in life. And so I think this is one of the places where we re really struggle because we find that only a third of people strongly agree that they have the opportunity to do what they do best, which of course means 70% don't. So we have huge opportunities in the global workforce to just address sort of this misery that exists in so many different workplaces. I hope I can put in a plug here for Clifton Strengths and formerly called Strengths Finder. I know many people refer to it still as that. We use it within our academy as one of the tools. And I know many of our listeners utilize it as well. It, it's such a helpful framework. I mean, so much of the ecosystem of Gallup has been built around thinking about strengths for years. And it's such an accessible, helpful, inexpensive framework to be able to start that conversation. You know, we have. I know many folks in our audience that they either as a team or individually, they go through the Clifton Strengths process. And that starts a conversation about looking at things through the lens of strengths. And I know there's a lot more beyond that, of course, but just beginning that conversation, getting the language down about what are the top talents that folks have is is really a great starting point for that. So it's I think it's a good invitation for managers who are looking to for an avenue to do a bit more of that because it really does then get to the heart of that. As I had mentioned before, you know, every philosopher from Aristotle to Peter Drecker all agree a great life is doing it through your strengths, but nobody ever told us where to start. So yeah. Don Clifton committed his life to figuring out, can we create a process so people know where to start in their journey to discover what makes them great and allow them to flourish within their careers? And so that's when he started, you know, interviewing thousands of people and then, you know, through kind of web-based surveys, millions of people to understand if we could come up with a taxonomy on strengths. And that's what he did. And this assessment, as you mentioned, Strengths Finder, now called Clifton Strengths after him. So it gives people a starting place. And it also, it's not just, a lot of people call it a personality assessment. That's not what it is. It's actually a development accelerator because we all develop differently. You know, if somebody has competition in their top five, what they want to know is how are they doing compared to others? And what causes them emotionally to go into flow is whether or not they've been challenged. And if they have been challenged, then they can basically do anything. The same is true with people who are learners. You can effectively get them to get energy from learning anything, and they'll spend countless hours doing that. So this is the taxonomy that he produced, and it's it's been really helpful to a number of workplaces who have actually seen 
increases in productivity. And I think the best one though is increases in engagement and well-being. Why? Because not only does this allow us to the opportunity to do what we do best, not only does this allow us to develop faster, become more productive colleagues. The big thing is, is it gives us a language to understand each other. Because oftentimes when we are trying to understand why someone did something, number one, we believe we try to see the world through their eyes, through our eyes. And the truth is we all don't see the world the same. And the other thing is, is that the human mind often spins in negativity, right? So that I think we have 80,000 thoughts in a day or 60,000, according to the CDC, but 80% of them are negative. So when you get an email from somebody, our instinct is that they wrote this in some kind of negative context, and it's usually not the case. But if you know their top five strengths, you can understand that where they're coming from is a good place. They just see the world very differently than you do. So it's, it's really been a productive tool for managers and all the organizations that have fully adopted it. And when Don Clifton, before he passed away, he had a vision that a million people would one day go through it. Not only did we cross that vision this year, we hit 28 million. And now we have a new shared collective vision that we hope one day a billion people will get in touch with their top five strengths. So again, that they can, you know, not only grow faster as a person, but also so that we have a common language to better understand each other. And that's the part that I think is so key is the common language piece. It gives people the ability to use language to understand. And then I think to ultimately using that common language to do a better job of something else that you point out big in the data that managers can do, which is listen. If you understand and you and you know you have some common language, like the more likely you are to be able to listen and connect. I mean, that's so key for employee happiness and well-being. And one of the other places that you mentioned a bit ago is customers and looking through that lens. And we do, again, tend to think about when we do customer surveys, when we think about relationships with customers, a lot of those tend to be rational measures on many of the surveys and the data. And one of the things that you recommend in the book is that the importance of gauging emotional attachment as well with customers. What does that look like and sound like? There's a bakery here in Georgetown and one of their biggest customers spent, I don't know, a hundred dollars with them per month. That means, you know, over the course of a year for a local bakery, $1,200 from one person is quite a bit of money. And one day that customer decided I'm never coming back. They didn't change their products. They didn't change the ingredients in the products. They didn't change their price. There's no change in terms of the weight line. All the rational metrics were exactly the same. But the reason she said, I'm never coming back is they disrespected her. Mm. Her decision was not rational. Her decision was emotional. Human beings, if we were robots, being treated with disrespect would not matter. But we aren't robots. And if you disrespect us, it changes how we feel about a person or an organization. And that's what took place that particular day. And so a lot of times in customer satisfaction surveys, or even when we're talking to our customers, we speak to only their rational mind. And our analysis says that your buying behavior, and we have two studies that did this one with, actually we did brain scans. We believe that it's 30% is rational and 70% is emotional. And so they are focusing far more on the rational side than they are the emotional side. And the emotional economy is where so much more money exists. Because imagine if they had not only treated her with respect, but imagine if they would have taken care of her as 
one of the large customers that she is, they probably could have gotten her to spend even more with them. So this is one of the places where organizations continue to fail is because they just focus on the rational side. When you see organizations make a bit of the shift away from just looking at the rational measures and they start to look at the emotional things, what is it that they're saying or doing or asking about that provides a bit of that insight? It's questions like, did they give you kind of like a surprise or a delight in the engagements that they have with you? Would you recommend this particular place? Of course, that's the NPS measure that many of us are familiar with. Could you imagine a world without this particular organization? Those are the kind of emotions that we have in terms of a brand, an institution, or anyone in professional services, because again, those are just some of the emotional sides. But I think the best thing is that when organizations get more involved in the qualitative as well, to really hear the story, the journey that a customer goes through, that's where I think you find the biggest gains in terms of creating that emotional experience for your customers. One of the examples you cite in the book is the financial sector, which is not a sector a lot of us think of when we think about emotional attachment, banks and financial institutions. And, and yet some of them have been leaders in this way of going beyond just the rational questions. And, and also the return is really substantial too. And I'm curious, what is it that some of those organizations are doing in the financial sector that is helping to illuminate those areas? They're listening. Just that simple. They're listening. And so the credit unions and the banks that we work with, they set up and train their teams on how can we better listen to our clients. And we actually saw increases in financial well-being, asking people about their subjective relationship to their money while COVID was taking place. So in real terms, you could see that financially they were taking hits. But when those banks, uh, credit unions had the close relationship with their customers, listened to them about what their financial objectives were talked them through it, that's when we could see that there were increases in financial well-being, even when times were the toughest. So I think a lot of times when somebody is an expert in their field, they lead by talking and explaining. And that's not always the best way to diagnose problems. The best way to diagnose problems would be like a great doctor or physician would do, is you have to constantly ask questions because the initial symptoms of whatever is wrong aren't always right in front of your face. And, you know, having those long discussions about what is it you're trying to achieve? What are your current behaviors in terms of your finances are the things that really help put people into a better place from an emotional side and a financial well-being perspective. It's fascinating how much of effective leadership keeps coming back to listening, being curious, asking questions. You know, so many of us really know that that's important. And yet in our daily actions and behaviors, we forget to do it. So it's a great push for us to remember to do that. One of the other lenses is suppliers, which of course is a huge stakeholder for many organizations. And one of the things that you suggest is thinking about having conversations with suppliers. And I, I love some of the suggested questions and areas to be curious about in the book, which is the company is easy to do business with. The company always does what they say they will do. The company treats me with respect. Getting clarity on those measures really does illuminate the relationship piece, doesn't it? Absolutely. If you think about your relationship with suppliers, and there are a lot of similarities too about your colleagues and your employees in an organization, but where do mistakes come from? Because if we were robots, we probably wouldn't be making 
the same amount of mistakes. But when you emotionally disengage, whether it's a supplier, an employee, or whoever, they start to take their eye off the ball more. And mistakes are what cause horrible issues throughout supply chains. And there was one study that found that mistakes in supply chains devalue a company by 10%. But all those things are preventable if you just had people that were caring more and trying to get the best product or service to whoever it is that they are supplying. So again, so much of this is emotional behavior that executives just fail to appreciate because they're still stuck in a mindset, which sometimes we're taught when we're in school that everything's about the rational mind and not necessarily about the emotional mind. When in reality, the decisions that we make are overwhelmingly emotional, not necessarily rational. When those types of interactions change with suppliers and you see organizations make that shift, is it one-on-one interactions? Is it surveys and asking different questions? Is it a, is it a combination? I'm curious, like, what does that look like as a first or second step? You def- I would say it is surveys at a macro level to understand if things are getting better or worse. And also, are you getting the discoveries that you need in order to make the right kind of decisions to improve the scores? But then the next one is qualitative. I think the best CEOs in the world, they never leave the front lines. They're obsessed with customers. Our chairman tells a story about the first time that he had met Jeff Bezos, who, of course, is one of the most famous executives for being customer obsessed. Mm-hmm. And the dialogue was, you know, Pretty incredible because, you know, when you meet somebody, you say to them, you know, how are you? How are things going? I'm so-and-so. Nice to meet you. His first question was, are you a Prime member? Now, this was so long ago that, you know, the Uh world wasn't as familiar with Prime. And I think it kind of surprised our chairman. And he he said, I'm sorry, what? And he goes, how do you not have Prime? I mean, so this is a this is a guy that is driving his products even at a one-to-one level and trying to understand kind of the process on why haven't you heard of this yet? How is it that I can reach more people? But that qualitative aspect, We just cannot appreciate it enough because there are so many discoveries to be had in order to make slight improvements about how people engage with your products and services. I think one of the real powers of this book is regardless of what philosophy you come to from business and leadership, that there's really so much here for everyone. I I know many of us have folks in our organizations who tend to take that shareholder approach, the rational bottom line. There's so much in the book on data that really shows and demonstrates the power of doing more of this, of thinking of well-being and happiness, that really does drive to the bottom line. And so I think if you're looking for a resource, if you're looking for data to support making that change in your organization, what a wonderful place this book is to start. And of course, so much of the data from Gallup to back it up. John, I have one final question for you. I mean, you have written this book. You've obviously been doing, you know, in depths of doing tons of research and looking at Gallup State over the years. And You've had a big transition yourself. You became CEO of Gallup this year, by the way. Congratulations. As you reflect on the last year or two, writing this book, becoming CEO, I'm curious, like, what's something you've changed your mind on? I don't know that it's that I've changed my mind, but I need to constantly remind myself about how can I become a better listener. And I think it's true for everyone. I think even the best listeners in the world have to constantly remind themselves that we've got to do more listening, more listening to our customers, more listening to our colleagues, and more listening to the world. Because people are overwhelmingly open about sharing what's on their mind. I think a lot of times people think for some reason in survey research that people don't really want to say how they feel. If you feel that way, you have not done surveys yourself. Mm -hmm. Because if you sit with somebody and you ask them, they will tell you virtually everything in their lives. 
So I think we all just need to be better listeners because it's clear that human beings want to share more. Yeah, it, 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 what you said is, it's so true. I've sent out surveys before and we've asked one question, what are you struggling with? And we'll get pages of responses sometimes, people we've never met, and yet the ability to just show up and listen is so powerful. H have you found anything that's just been a good nudge for you on a daily basis that just reminds you to, in the moment, to listen a bit better? I think, I've told this to my colleagues a few times, but I did some qualitative research in Mongolia a few years ago. And one of the questions we asked in the whole world is, do you feel safe walking alone at night? And mm. this was on the outskirts of Ulaanbaatar. We were in this woman's yurt and the interview is conducted by a Mongolian woman. She d conducts it in Mongolian. I follow along with an English one. And because there's a white American guy sitting in the room, the interview gets thrown out. It's just for qualitative purposes. But... <laughs> We said, do you, in the city area where you live, do you feel safe walking alone at night? And she said, no. And so at the end of the interview, we said, well, why? Why don't you feel safe walking alone at night? Now, remember when somebody says they don't feel safe walking alone at night, my instinct is that the reason they don't feel safe is because of crime. They think they're going to get mugged or assaulted. And if you, if we had stopped listening at that moment and assumed that we were leaders of that community then we may have started to build strategies in order to make the community safer from, I don't know, young people that might be mugging or assaulting people, whatever the case may be. But that would have been a problem because we would have stopped listening. So we finally asked the question, what is it you're afraid of? And it wasn't crime. She said, I'm afraid of rabid dogs because there's a dog problem in my community. Huh. But do you see the problem is that if you stop listening, you may build strategies work as hard as you can, and you could actually make things worse because you never address the underlying problem. And so it's inspiring to me because it's a, rem it's a reminder that you can't stop listening. Even when you think you've gotten to the root of the problem, you may not have. There may be one more question left. And so that's a constant reminder to me that I need to keep making sure that I'm asking questions. And again, it's hard because I don't know necessarily that human beings are hardwired to listen. It seems like society has shown that we're hardwired to try to voice our opinion. So it's hard. And it's something that I need to keep working on. And I hope that my colleagues share with me that we all keep working on it. John Clifton is the author of Blind Spot: The Global Rise of Unhappiness and How Leaders Missed It. John, so appreciate your work and everything you're doing at Callup. Dave, thank you for having me. And thank you for having an interest in our work. If this conversation was helpful to you, several related episodes I'd recommend. One of them's episode 237, These Coaching Questions Get Results. Michael Pungay-Stanier was my guest on that episode. We looked at the seven key coaching questions he identifies in his best-selling Coaching Habit book. And of course, so many of us as leaders often come into a leadership role feeling like we need to have answers. And of course, there's a time and a place for answers. But often, it begins with asking the right questions, especially when it comes to engaging the people that we have the privilege to lead. Episode 237 is an invitation for you on which questions to begin with to begin to hear more in those conversations. I'd also recommend episode 293, How Teams Use StrengthsFinder Results with Lisa Cummings. Many of us have utilized Gallup StrengthsFinder Assessment over the years and know our talents, and yet we haven't necessarily implemented it as well with our teams and done the follow-up that a lot of times we intend when we use an assessment like StrengthsFinder. Lisa walks us through step-by-step -step of not only 
what the strengths finder assessment is, but perhaps more importantly, once you've utilized it yourself, once you've utilized it with your team, what can you do to actually continue to get value out of the assessment and to support your team and leveraging their strengths going forward? Episode 293 is a roadmap for exactly where to start. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 532, how to help people thrive. Jim Harder was my guest on that episode. He's Gallup's chief scientist and walked us through some of the recent data on how to help organizations and people thrive and a great compliment to this conversation of course today with John on looking at Gallup's data through another lens of what can the individual manager do and the short answer to that question is an individual manager can do a lot episode 532 for even more uh, tactics and strategies that you can utilize that will help you to move forward in a positive direction of course all of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website if you have your free membership set up already you can go into the free membership and search by topic we've had many conversations over the years on employee engagement, customer service, assessments, as we've talked about today in this conversation, many others there as well. I always encourage you to find the episodes that are going to be most relevant to you right now. What are you struggling with? What's important in your organization? Utilize the free membership in order to surface that immediately. And of course, many other benefits inside the free membership. One of them is the free uh, suite of audio courses that are there. One of them is called How to Engage Your Audience. Uh, It's a detailed audio course on the mindset for effective presentations, how to make complexity simple, and how to handle pushback, especially when you get tough questions in front of a a real or virtual audience, wherever they may be. Lots of details there. It's just one of the many free audio courses that are part of the free membership, plus a ton more resources available. All of it you can find at coachingforleaders.com. Set up your free membership, and you'll have access to all of that in just a few moments. Next week, I'm glad to welcome Lynn Perry Wooten to the show. She is going to be helping us on where to start when inheriting a team that's in crisis. Join me for that conversation next Monday and have a great week.